Seltzer Kings podcasts. I wouldn't go climbing up on that high horse there, Gavin. You guys went to war over a fly speck of rock in the Atlantic. That's only export was penguin poo. Ass. The following podcast contains... You used to be a kind, loving man, and now you're a foul-mouthed monster. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks us a simple question. When you broadcast a snuff film on a loop to every home in America, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and that's episode number 394, Bomb in the Bathroom Window edition of the show, and it's part two of Operation Desert Storm, where we talk about watching people die on the evening news. Stay tuned. The What the Hell You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Nate's Night Vision. Because the night is dark and full of terrors. Are you in the dark about your choices in night vision equipment? Need a candle to light the way? Then you need Nate's night visions. Nate specializes in low light optics from mil spec to top of the line thermal imaging and low light amplifiers. Commercial grade enhancement for your video cameras. Never again will you miss the shot. Be it a 12 point buck problem in the brush along your property or your neighbor's bedroom window in the wee hours of the morning. Nate's night vision shining the light on savings for all your low light imaging needs. Warning, use of Nate's night vision products for spying, keeping, or voyeurism of any kind may be prohibited by local laws. Check your jurisdiction before using it in this manner. Nate's is not responsible for illegal use of this product, and honestly, we're not even sure why we brought it up. Else were used alongside the long-range tomahawks. This is on the front end of the weapon itself. This is the SRAM missile with a camera in its nose striking a hardened hangar. The first missile in this attack goes straight home. A second, however, wobbles before locking back onto its target and a devastating hit. General Schwarzkopf took particular pride in the precision with which his military could hit what they wanted, while not hitting people involved in non-military pursuits. I'm now going to show you a picture of the luckiest man in Iraq on this particular day. Keep your eye on the crosshairs right there. Look at here right through the crosshairs. And now in his rearview mirror. So I've mentioned before about my traumatization as a kid by cinematic violence. You big baby. I'm 53 years old and sometimes I still think about that stupid flying silver ball with a spike on it from Phantasm. Phantasm, the delusion of a disordered mind, a phantom, a spirit. A ghost. For nearly four decades it has been contained, but evil always has a way of breaking free. What a great idea, having a ten-year-old watch that. Or how about the time I spent all of Jaws with my head in the popcorn bucket? So, you know, what I'm saying is unlike many men of my generation, I was never a fan of the slasher flick. You're a wussy little fraidy cat. Not at all. I like to think of myself as a pragmatist. All those teens running around in the woods with the girls. You never catch me in that situation. Still afraid of girls. <laughs> no, I, I okay, I was at the time, but not now. What I mean was, it just seemed to me that if I found myself in a situation where a masked lunatic with a machete was trying to kill me, running screaming through the woods might not the, be the ideal way to deal with the problem. 
I rather assume that stealth is a far better option, and I would never ever stop to make out on a back road if there was so much as a rumor of masked lunatics killing teens in the vicinity. Now, this reticence for blood only applied to the horror genre. I had no problems at all seeing blood, gore, gruesome deaths, and different milieus. Watching a dude get run through with a six-foot broadsword spewing blood everywhere while screaming out his death throes. That's fucking awesome! Seeing some poor schlub getting blown apart by logically dubious applications of rockets or bombs. I want to see this again. Rewind. Killed by gunshot, stabbed with knives, choked to death by garrote, pushed off the side of a building, car crash with a gasoline fire, and someone running, screaming out of the wreckage, engulfed in flames? Shit, yeah, give me that kind of violence. Put it right in my fucking veins. That's the shit I paid this five bucks to get into this movie in the first place. I mean, this shit could really happen. Someone really killed could get pulled down by a pack of lions and eaten alive on the plains of the Serengeti. Bambi, the Lion King, Saw 7. I love that kind of thing because it could be real, but it isn't. Kind of like that Faces of Death movie. But all of that being true, I did not then and do not now want to watch real people die on television because I am not a monster. Which brings me to the show topic for this week, Operation Desert Storm. Or rather, the shooty part of the war. As the air attacks began, CNN cut away instantly to the reporters on the ground in Baghdad. Specifically, they were in the Al Rashid Hotel. In beautiful downtown Baghdad. Located just five kilometers outside the city center of Baghdad, the Al Rashid provided luxury accommodations for 18 floors of sumptuous living. With rooftop vistas overlooking the command and control facilities of the Iraqi Armed Forces, the Al Rashid provides breathtaking views for the air combat in the skies over Baghdad. Residents can sip beverages poolside while the whole might of the Western world raids high explosives on residential districts, hospitals, and occasionally a military outpost. The Al Rashid, where CNN watches the war. Some of those reports from the front lines were downright amusing, including this one where Bernard Shaw openly admits he was hiding under a table during a sweep by the Iraqi military. Thank you, Peter. Just to explain to our viewers why you did not hear from us for uh, a nervously long time. For the past 20 minutes, I've been hiding under a table. And what happened was the security people made a sweep. They got very upset that uh, there were three mortals on this floor, just three men standing in a hotel room. So uh, I scampered to hide to make sure that if they pulled Arnett and Holloman out and took them downstairs into custody, at least there would still be one CNN person on the air, John. Yep, you heard that right. Bernie Shaw was hiding just in case the other reporters were arrested. When danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail no! and <laughs> I should take a minute to talk about the air war. Commanded by my dad's direct supervisor, Lieutenant General Charles Chuck Horner. Was he nice? To my dad? Oh, yeah, sure. It was great. Had him over for dinner a couple of times. To the Iraqis? Yeah, not so much. They are the enemy. Chuck planned and executed a flawless air campaign. Credit where credit is due. 
I mean, it was against the Iraqis who had the best air defenses that 1972 can buy, and their pilots were not trained in modern combat techniques. And while technically they had combat experience, it was against the Iranian Air Force who were uh, not top guns for all, you know, they had a couple of F-14s, but still, flawless campaign. They went up against the most modern air force in the entire world, and it was, uh... It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Shit, not even that many planes ever got off the ground. I mean, they were destroyed by cruise missiles while still in their hangars. The air defense network was good, again by 1972 standards, but in 1991, when the U.S. Air Force had months to digitally map the network via recon flights far out of range of their weapons, the results of the first night and all the subsequent nights were, uh, predictable. It blew up... Yeah, blew up, blew up real good. And on top of that, stealth fighters with the Iraqis had zero defense against, slipped over the border ahead of everyone else and just fucked everything up that might be capable of shooting down a coalition aircraft. All that was left on the ground were a few machine guns and some shoulder-fired missiles, which is why the Scud Studs had such a good light show over Baghdad. This left the Iraqis with very few options to respond, so they pulled out their feared super weapon, the dreaded Scud Missile. Alright, Scud the school, dude! The Soviet-designed Scud Missile. Well, in this case, it was the actually the Iraqi version called the Al Hussein. His name is Al. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, actually, when you think about it, it does sound like a guy you know from work. But in this case, it was probably named after Saddam. These Scuds were a very short-range missile, just over 400 miles, mounted on mobile launchers, and they could theoretically be equipped with conventional chemical or nuclear warheads. They were not very good missiles, mind you. A GPI-scratted cruise missile could be dropped on a specific parking spot in an Applebee's parking lot. Oh my goddamn fucking space! A scud on a good night might hit the town where the Applebee's was located. Still, use what you have, and Iraqi lobs some scuds at targets in Saudi Arabia, including the base where my dad was, was stationed, so he was shot at. But uh, those scuds were quickly and easily shot down. More to come on that in a moment. More inconveniently, however, several scuds were lobbed at Israel, which posed a huge problem for the coalition because Israel had been kept very specifically out of this whole war thing against Iraq. Without getting into the uh, diplomatic weeds, Israel retaliating against Iraq for those scuds would be, uh, to put it mildly, problematic? Yeah. You see, the Arab nations in the coalition were very specific about not wanting Israel in the war, since they had all had their asses kicked by Israel on multiple occasions, and they were still in their feelings about that. So, the United States had to do something about it, and that's where we bring out the... The Patriot missile. Correct. One of the stars of the war. The Patriots were able to intercept incoming missiles and destroy them before they hit their target. It wasn't a particularly new technology. It was just the first time we'd seen it before, and TV news loved them. They just seemed so technological. There were already Patriots in Saudi Arabia, so they were rushed over to Israel, where they shot down the sporadic, scud sporadic scuds that went towards Israel for the rest of the war. God, TV loved the gadgets of this war. Stealth fighters, Patriot missiles, and most of all... Smart bomb, stupid bomb. The smart bomb. We've all gotten used now to seeing the grainy green footage of crosshairs on some building and seeing it suddenly go white as the bomb in the building. Incidentally, everyone inside the building suddenly ceased to exist. But in 1991, no one outside of a secure facility on a military base had ever seen anything like it. And the news loved to show the fucking clips of these precision strikes. Me to the south. 
Laser coming on. Got the laser on. Holding the track and steady on the far corner. Roger. Say call sign. Calling back. Good. Ten seconds. Shell four one. I've got a tally. Oh, I think that's wedged to the south. Four, three, two. My position for about ten miles. The impact. Boom! Oh yes. And oh, did the military love to show them to us, complete with their spiels about how incredibly accurate the bombs are. They had one purported to be a bomb going in an open window. You couldn't sit down for dinner without half a dozen of these every fucking night on the news for weeks on end. Because there's nothing like enjoying your nice steak dinner while watching the high-tech equivalent of a snuff film. Because you know, you just watched a bunch of people die, right? I mean, we weren't dropping bombs on empty buildings. We were dropping bombs on buildings with actual human beings in them. That was kind of the point. Yeah, they were the enemy, but they were still like, you know, human beings, not computer-generated pixels, but sentient creatures with parents, wives, children, dreams, hopes, things like that. And yeah, they might be the bad guys, but most were probably just someone who needed a job or more likely got drafted to fight in a war they didn't want to be part of. But hey, you know, enjoy your dinner and your war movies. But you are an epic buzzkill. Now, this is this has all been pretty one-sided, this whole war thing, which was to be expected since one side is so very much, much more powerful than the other. But never let it be said Iraq didn't try to get their licks in. On January 29, 1991, around 2,000 Iraqi soldiers supported by a couple hundred vehicles, including light armor, swarmed across the Saudi border into the town of Kafji. U.S. Air Recon saw all of this going down, but I guess the generals were too busy watching snuff videos to take it seriously and do anything about it. The uh, Iraqis overwhelmed the small forces stationed in the town as a screening force and quickly occupied it. And then other Iraqi forces were put in motion to support and expand this little offensive. Because those forces coming to reinforce the town, (laughs) they were swarmed over by American planes like wasp on a watermelon. Quoting now from AaronSpaceForces.com, quote, Pilots found the Iraqi armored vehicles easy to identify once they were on the move. Near Al-Wafra, an A-10 pilot described the sight of a column of vehicles as something like from A-10 schools. A-6 intruders from the Navy joined in using rock-eye air-to-ground weapons. A-10 pilot Captain Rob Gibbons later recalled with some amazement, I, myself, one captain in one airplane, was engaging up to a battalion size of armor on the ground and keeping those guys pinned for a little bit. Air Force AC-130 gunships waiting on alert was scrambled after a hasty briefing. As lead elements of the 5th mechanized with some support from the 3rd Armor reached Kofji, one Air Force gunship caught the column and stopped many of them from entering the town, unquote. Within 48 hours, the Iraqis retreated. They left hundreds killed, hundreds more captured, and almost all their armor destroyed. Coalition forces lost 43 people, almost all of them, to friendly fire. One of the sad but bitterly true facts about the Gulf War is the biggest danger to our troops over there were our other troops. For weeks, coalition forces flew uncontested over Iraq, blowing shit up, hunting for scuds, and just generally having a fucking ball. It's equally important to have fun. I cannot tell you how many pilots I spoke to after the war who flew in the desert storm that flat out bragged about how much fun they were having after the first few days. Just zipping off to blow up a building or drop bombs on troop positions and then flying back to base in time to watch their exploits on fucking CNN. But alas, air power alone wasn't going to get the Iraqis out of Kuwait. Now where would the fun in that be? To get them and their boys to take their toys and go home, 
It would take in the words of Saddam Hussein, the mother of all battles. And on February 24th, 1991, it began. 100 hours later, it was over. Spoiler alert, the Iraq is lost. I mean, it wasn't even close. I could spend the next 20 minutes talking about the great deception, how we kept attention focused on marine amphibious landings in Kuwait, or how Storm and Norman made it look like the main assault was going to come from the south when in reality he was going to do his famous left hook and take the enemy in flank with a massive armor column. But I don't need to. I can let Storm and Norman explain it just himself in like two minutes. We continued our heavy operations out in the sea because we wanted the Iraqis to continue to believe that we were going to conduct a massive amphibious operation in this area. And I think many of you recall the number of amphibious rehearsals we had to include imminent thunder that was written about quite extensively uh, for many reasons. But uh, we continued to have those operations because we wanted him to concentrate his forces, which he did. I think this is probably one of the most important parts of the entire briefing I could talk about. As you know, very early on, we took out the Iraqi Air Force. We knew that he had very, very limited reconnaissance means. And therefore, when we took out his Air Force, for all intents and purposes, we took out his ability to see what we were doing down here in Saudi Arabia. Once we had taken out his eyes, we did what could best be described as the Hail Mary play in football. I think you recall when the quarterback is desperate for a touchdown at the very end, what he does is he steps up behind the center, and all of a sudden, every single one of his receivers goes way out to the to one flank and they all run down the field as fast as they possibly can and into the end zone and he lobs the ball. In essence, that's what we did. When we knew that he couldn't see us anymore, we did a massive movement of troops all the way out to the west, to the extreme west, because at that time we knew that he was still fixed in this area with the vast majority of his forces and once the air campaign started, he would be incapable of moving out to, to counter this move, even if he knew we made it. I would never go so far as to say that the battle for Kuwait was one-sided, because that would imply that the Iraqi army actually fought back. No, that's not what happened. They just unassed the area as quickly as possible. Infamously, they loaded everything that wasn't nailed down and a few things that were nailed down if they could find a hammer on anything that could roll and fled Kuwait as fast as they could fucking go. A massive column of fleeing Iraqis spilled out into the open and was promptly slaughtered by coalition air power. Quoting from Wikipedia, quote, The Highway of Death is a six-lane highway between Kuwait and Iraq, officially known as Highway 80. I've driven on it myself. It runs from Kuwait City to the border town of Sufwan in Iraq, and then on to the Iraqi city of Basra. During the American-led coalition offensive into the Persian Gulf War, American, Canadian, British, and French aircraft and ground forces attacked retreating Iraqi military personnel attempting to leave Kuwait on the night of February 26th to 27th, 1991, resulting in the destruction of hundreds of vehicles and the deaths of many of their occupants. Between 1,400 and 2,000 vehicles were hit or abandoned on the main Highway 80 north of Al-Jahara. The death toll from the attack remains unknown. British journalist Robert Fisk said he lost count of Iraqi corpses crammed in the smoldering wreckage or slumped face down on the sand at the main site and saw hundreds of corpses strewn up and down the road all the way to the Iraqi border. 
American journalist Bob Drogan reported seeing scores of dead soldiers in and around vehicles mangled and bloated in the drifting desert stands. A 2003 study by the Project on Defense Alternative estimated fewer than 10,000 people rode in the cutoff main caravan, and when the bombing started, most simply left their vehicles to escape through the desert or into nearby swamps where maybe some died from their wounds and some were later taken prisoner. According to the PDA, the often repeated low estimate of the numbers killed in the attack is two to 300, reported by journalist Michael Calley, who personally counted 37 bodies, but a minimum death toll or at least five or 600 seems more plausible, unquote. Plausible, huh? Yeah, okay. Those numbers are almost certainly laughably low. Upper estimates put the death toll in the thousands. I personally was told some five years later by a Kuwaiti officer who had firsthand knowledge of the situation that at least 10,000 people were killed on the highway of death because the Kuwaitis were the ones that had to fucking bury them all. The entire highway of death is quite likely a war crime. I know because it was called one at the time. These were not active combatants. They were running for their lives. And on top of that, there were almost certainly civilians in the column. But hey, so long as everyone was having fun. No harm, no foul. And you know, the whole thing was just sort of smoothed over in a feel-good post-war nut buzz that just swept the entire world. Again, except for, you know, the Iraqis. The war was over. The good guys won. Kuwait was back in Kuwaiti hands. Admittedly, most of it was on fire because the Iraqis blew up all the oil wells because the the Iraqis were, in fact, actual assholes. I know I've been super critical of the good old U.S. of America, but it should be noted the Iraqis did do a lot of terrible things themselves, not the least of which was invade Kuwait in the first place, which caused this whole fucking thing to happen. But the important thing is America won. It won decisively, and most of all, it won quickly. No decade-long slog toward a negotiated withdrawal, just a lightning offensive, a clear defeat, and the shooting was over. Did a few people grouse about us not going all the way and removing Saddam Hussein from power? Oh boy, did they. But as Poppy Bush pointed out, the UN said to kick the Iraqis out of Kuwait. It said nothing about occupying Iraq. Also, come on. If they got rid of Saddam, who was going to be our boogeyman? Russia was done for, Iran was reeling from a decade of war with Iraq and North Korea. Well, Kim Jong-il was too busy making movies and drinking all the imported scotch he could get his hands on. So they needed Saddam in power to make sure military spending didn't drop too far. If we'd removed Saddam from power in 1991, who the fuck were we going to have a war with for the next decade? Which, hey, we did. Nah, keeping Saddam in power was more about the free ever war than any sort of UN resolution. I don't care what the fuck George H.W. Bush said. As early as March, they began bringing the boys home. And the girls should point out that there were women over in the Persian Gulf. In fact, I read an interesting tidbit while researching the show that, like, by a factor of 10 to 1, more people got pregnant while in the Persian Gulf for Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, the people who were actually deployed there, then all the people we lost in the war. So for every American that died in the war, there were 10 babies conceived during the operation. There was a lot of fucking going on in the AOR. There was at least 10, maybe 20 new divorces, trust me. I know. When I got back stateside in 92, I saw all of them. It was a very good time for me because there were a lot of angry wives back there. What was I talking about? 
Oh, right. Homecomings. Yes, exactly. We live in a world where thanking someone for their services obligatory, unless you mean thanking for their services with things like meaningful medical care or assistance reacclimating to civilian life or dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. But let's not get crazy here. But it was nothing like what happened in 1991. Not since World War II had returning GIs seen such an overwhelming expression of thanks and gratitude. American flags, yellow ribbons festooned every fucking thing. If you showed up in a uniform, you could not get anyone to take your money for anything. I mean, within reasons. We're talking like a meal at Diddy's, not like a new car. It was great, but not that great. You sure as hell didn't pay for drinks. If you had a chocolate chip desert BDU on, people bought you drinks, even if you spent your war in an air-conditioned comfort far beyond scud range. And good God, could you get laid. Even ugly guys were getting pussy thrown on them like a ticker tape parade. And speaking of parades, everywhere had a fucking parade. This is from the Orlando Sentinel on a one in Tavares, Florida, population 9,500. Quote, a pilot shot down during the Persian Gulf War and a fellow flyer who led a mission to rescue him will take center stage this weekend as Lake County celebrates the end of the war and honors hundreds of their own who, who served in it. Two other servicemen who gained national recognition during the World War will be on hand, along with as many as 80 Lake County men and women who returned from Operation Desert Storm. They will take part in a parade in downtown Tavares. The parade will be the largest ever in the county, organizers say, surpassing every centennial parades in 1987. The parade has now more than 300 units, said Horan, an organizer. We've got veterans groups, floats, civic clubs, fire departments, mayors, baseball teams, cheerleaders, and high school bands. We have everything. While Tavares, because it is the county seat, is hosting the parade, the event is a countywide celebration. Units from cities, unincorporated communities throughout Lake County have been entered in the parade, unquote. But it was in Washington, D.C., where the biggest parade of them all, the biggest since the end of World War II, celebrated America's heroes. Good evening. Well, already they are saying tonight it was the biggest military celebration in the nation's capital since World War II, as Washington today honored the U.S. servicemen and women who fought in the Gulf War, both those who returned and those who died. 200,000 enthusiastic spectators watched a parade of troops and their weapons, all part of the national victory celebration. It was glorious. Tanks rolling down Pennsylvania avenues, flybys, so many, so many flags for all those goddamn heroes who bombed an ill-prepared Air Force for a couple of weeks and, and fought 100 hours of utterly lopsided combat at the cost of 96 coalition deaths in combat and 105 coalition deaths in non-combat. The Iraqis lost between 150,000 and 350,000 people, all told. They did not get a parade. All that feel good did not feel good for very long. George H.W. Bush's approval ratings had topped 85% in the weeks following the war and started a long slide from there, bottoming out at 29% a year after his big parade. The economy faltered. People were losing jobs. Oddly enough, people in the military lost biggest of all. After our big win in the Cold War and Desert Storm, there was a steep drawdown in our armed forces. After all, who was left to fight? There was a new world order now. Ooh, sounds scary. No. And there's no need for such a huge military. I mean, we still had a fucking huge military, but we could cut out the dead weight, I guess. 
I mentioned last week that my dad got fucked out of, because of his participation in the war. He eventually took a severance package after not making promotion to major. So a pilot somewhere could be promoted out of flying and transferred into a desk job that my dad used to do. So I guess both of them lost because both of them hated it. Tens of thousands of active duty people, people took packages like this, some happily, some, like my dad, out of no other real choice. He left, a, he left the military a job that he loved and wound up an assistant manager at a fucking Walmart. The country entered a recession at the same time as the war was going on, which no one noticed with all the cool bombings on TV. It wasn't even a particularly bad recession by all standards, but it was brief, and it was just long enough to tank Poppy's re-election efforts so he would lose to Bill Clinton in 1992. So I guess my dad wasn't the only one that lost a job in this fucking stupid war. And that vibe of I love the military <laughs> was also really fucking short-lived. By the end of 1991, there were no more yellow ribbon discounts at Denny's, no more sloppy blowjobs for our boys in uniform, and you're damn sure buying your own drinks in the bar. The afterglow of orgiastic military destruction was as short as the war itself. By the time I got back from Korea in the December of 91, the only sign the whole thing even happened were some faded yellow ribbons tied around the old oak trees, a few war trophy Russian tanks on static to place on military bases, and all the good officers and sergeants were gone. They took those buyouts, just like my dad, and left the suck-ups, brown nosers, and career-focused assholes in charge. No one gave a runny shit if you were in the military or not. Here's your full price moons over my hammy, asshole. You sound bitter. Do I? I mean, it's not for me, not really. I set out the war drinking and playing soldier in the cold wet of Korea. No one ever shot scuds at me, and I didn't have to wear a chemical protective suit in desert temperatures. But it was, and I am, bitter for my dad. He loved being in the military. It was his life. It was just my job. And I'm bitter for what? All of this bullshit set up to happen. We spent the next decade in the Persian Gulf deterring Iraqi aggression, all the while stoking the hatred of various religious factions against Americans for occupying the holy land of Islam. I mean, yeah, yeah they were going to find something to be angry about if we weren't there, but our being there made it so fucking easy. I did my tour in the sandbox in 1996 after a massive truck bomb exploded outside an Air Force barracks in Dahran, Saudi Arabia. Killed 19, injured 400. That caused a massive exodus of all the people in Saudi Arabia way out of the middle of nowhere so we could be safe. And that told the terrorists they could hurt us enough to make us flinch. And they started planning for something that would really make us flinch. Five years later, we flinched. Real fucking hard. I'm bitter because we ended up going back to war in Iraq to finish what we started or because Saddam tried to kill W's daddy. I'm bitter because this quick, easy, relatively bloodless war, I mean, on our side anyway, made us believe that our 2003 invasion would be another rerun of that feel-good war from 1991. Kind of like Cheers or something. Funny how the war that came after the war that wasn't going to be like Vietnam turned out to be a whole fucking lot like Vietnam. I'm bitter that it made people think war was more like a video game or a movie special effect than what it is. Highly organized, super efficient murder on the one hand, and on the other hand, a chaotic shitstorm of mud, blood, and death on the other. All because it was so good for ratings, for cable fucking news. 
You know what? In a just world, we would have emptied out CNN Center in Atlanta and sent one of those super accurate fucking smart bombs through the window into the studio. Everyone would have been fine. Bernard Shaw could have taught everyone how to cover underneath a table. That is it for our show this week. Well, there you go. Operation Desert Storm in a nutshell. What, were you looking for some sort of play-by-play action of all the battles and in-depth analysis of economic and political underpinnings of the 1990s to better understand the motivation of the actors? Yeah, I was too, but it turns out most of the available research material is about the 2003 Iraq War. I don't have the budget for deep dives. Honey, how that works out, Jeremy. Still, even if I did have a good research material, I would have done the dick jokes anyway, because... They're the lowest common denominator. Speaking of the lowest common denominator, rate and review this show wherever you get your podcast. It helps others find us and be brought down to the lowest common denominator podcasting, just like you are now. If you like what we do for some reason, kick us a buck on patreon.com slash what the hell podcast, just like Stephen W. and Brian Scooby Sexclusion did this month. Thank you both. You're both official What the Hell podcast pod pals. And if you ever see producer Gavin in person, you can legally force him to rub your feet. Now, you need to do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits. Otherwise, he will have no choice but to put you in his podcasting crosshairs and launch a withering denunciation of your failure to follow simple instructions. You want to avoid that. It's quite cutting. I should know. He made me cry once. No, he didn't. Jeremy would never do that. And so for me, Dave, it, it came in through the bathroom window, Bledsoe. Producer, and then the whole building just went boom. Gavin, and all the fictional people in buildings that don't want to get blown up, we want to say, why didn't anybody tell them? Why didn't anybody see that a small country like Iraq going to war with a superpower was going to end badly for them? Jesus, I think that this And we'll see you all next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Man, that's a real shame when folks be throwing away a perfectly good white boy like that. Seltzer Kings. Podcasts.